Acts chapter 2. Let me read verse 40 through, uh, I'll tackle one more verse, verse 40 through 47. Hear the holy word of our holy God. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All those who had believed were taken together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who are busy being saved. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have upon us in Christ Jesus, your beloved Son, the Son of your love, the Son of our love, the Savior of our love. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, by the gift and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would have mercy upon me and give me the ability to preach your word, even this word, that you would speak to us all, Father, as your children, and conform us into the image of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, that as you've called us individually to your Son, Jesus, so too you've called us together as the body of Christ. May we think like it, may we, Lord God, feel like it, may we live like it, both in word and deed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Acts has been an interesting, interesting book for for me to... um, to work through, I, I love to prepare, I love to study, and I, I, I love to preach God's Word. But in studying this particular book, what I've been finding happening to me is I'll look at a passage and I think, well, okay, this is where the passage is going, and it's the way that I think, and I look for themes and sub-themes and connections. I think, okay, I'm going to head this way. And then I start to get into the passage and work through the passage during the week. I think, well, wait, there's there's more than that. So I originally was attending to look at this passage as the fellowship of the saints. You see the people meeting together. They're sharing things in common in manifestation of love, love and word and deed. But behind that fellowship of the saints, the fellowship of those people in the church, there is the more basic idea of, what is the church and we'll see the church are those people that have repented of their sins they believe in christ they're baptized so in order to make sense of the other what's going on here fellowship i do want to see the more basic doctrine of the church and which is why i've kind of regrouped so next week we're going to look at the same passage but we're going to look at it then hopefully i always say next week like next week we are going to do this I should walk around with that s- statement of James, like literally, I should tack it on to everything, Lord willing, Lord willing. So don't think me presumptuous when I say next week, um, who's to say whether we'll be in heaven or not. But 
My intention this week is to look at the being of the church, and then next week, when we look at Consider Fellowship, we're going to look at the well-being of the church. Today, we're going to look at the, uh, the nature or the doctrine of the church, and next week, as I say, um, the fellowship of the church. And when I say the church, a brother was talking very interesting Sunday school and how essentially our country, I've mentioned it before, I think this is true, we are the Hatfields and McCoys of a country, political parties and so on. But also when I, I speak about the church, immediately even in the church, we start to become the Hatfields and the McCoys. And what do I mean by that? I know I'm dating myself even saying that. Some young people probably don't know what I'm talking about, Hatfields and McCoys. We're feuding. We're, we're a feuding folk. So as soon as I mention the church or the nature of a true church or the marks of a true church, immediately what we're thinking is, well, it, you mean Baptist, you mean Presbyterian, you mean Episcopalian, and then we subdivide all over the place, not just any old Baptist or any old Presbyterian. You have to get it right and get my kind of church, right? Okay, since we're looking at this under the larger doctrine, and there were added 3,000 souls to the church. Later in chapter 4, there were added 5,000 souls to the church. So this clearly is talking about the doctrine of the church, biblical doctrine. Now, when I say biblical doctrine, there are lots of churches, and I was raised in one of them. They have doctrines of the church, but it's not based on Scripture. It's based on the traditions of men. This is how we do it around here. Well, is it in the Bible why you do it around here? No, it's just how we do it. We don't want to be that kind of church. We just, this is how we do it around here, because it's tradition. We want to take our views on Christ's church from God's word. But as I say that, I want everyone in this room to be a good Berean. When you see, and 3,000 souls were added to the church, to the congregation, do you see in this passage, just to take off that Hatfields and McCoys, thinking, are you going to get around to talking about my church, the right church, the true church? Is this just you shilling for the OPC? I love the OPC, but I promise I'm not shilling for the OPC. In this passage, you have a Bible. Look in it. Does it say in 3,000 souls were added to Bob's Baptist or Pete's Presbyterian? Does it say that? No. Does it say any in here any particular form of church government? The only thing we have is a couple of apostles. Does it say here even any form or formula for the administration of baptism? I mean mode. Does it talk about sprinkling, which people pitch a fit over the mode of baptism? Does it talk about these things? No. So when we're talking about the nature of the church or the marks of a true church, what's true according to the word of God, I think all of us, even as believers, if you are raised some, some, if you are raised any kind of way, but religiously, you're going to have a way that you see through religion, through lenses that you can't even really conceive that you're looking in a, in a predisposition. If I raise you Baptist, you're going to look at the Bible like a Baptist. If I raise you like a Presbyterian, you're going to look at the Bible like a Presbyterian. And you're going to swear, oh no, I'm coming to a completely a neutral or a purely objective. You're not. If you are raised a certain way, that affects you greatly. So I want us to be good Bereans. What does the Bible say here about the nature of the church? And we're going to see basic things. Church people believe. Church people repent. Church people are baptized. And then we're going to see the marks of a true church. And there's the preaching of the word in this passage. 
Peter's preaching the word, and then they're preaching and teaching house to house. So when you say, well, how do I know what's a true church? Are they preaching the gospel? Do they preach the law of God? Do they preach the gospel of God? Do they preach the Bible? Then you see the administration, again, marks of a true church. You see the administration of baptism. You see the administration of, uh, of the Lord's Supper. Those, there, there are two sacraments in the New Testament church. The church of my youth, I think they had seven or nine. I forget which now. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible doesn't teach the administration of seven or nine sacraments. It teaches two. So how do we know if we're in a right church? How do we know if it's constituted according to the word of God? Do they administer baptism? Do they administer the Lord's Supper? Now, as you look at it, I, I do want us to see, does the Bible say, well, there, can be, there should be genuflecting or no genuflecting? There should be a pinch of salt in the water when you're baptizing? Or should you, you add oil or so on? It doesn't do any of that. It's very, very basic. They baptized and then they took the Lord's Supper. Then you see, in addition, as we're looking at what does the Bible say about the nature of the church? Our brother is teaching us a Sunday school using J.C. Rowell as a platform, and I think the main subject will be prayer. In this particular passage that we're looking at, we have a number of instances where they prayed together as the church, and they praised God together. Again, super basic. is very, very basic. But I think we need to get there because it, it, it crucifies that desire in us to say, only me and the five people that uh, agree with me, we are the perfect and pure church. Resist that. Resist that. And I would argue, if you go to a building in which they say to you, our five folk are the only true church, you need to leave. They're fixing up a batch of uh, a Kool-Aid in the back. You need to leave. Is not taught by the Bible. Do the people believe in Christ? Have they repented of their sins? Are they baptized? Do you hear the word of God, law, gospel preached? Are the two sacraments administered? And then, do you find the people praying? Are they a praying people? Is their prayer corporately? Is their prayer individually? And are these people praising? And again, I, I don't mean to be silly. Notice in this text, as we're talking about the nature and the marks, just generally of the church, it doesn't say piano or bongos or guitar. It doesn't. It just says praising. I have my inclination. I have my tastes. Again, the way that I was raised, even religiously, without the true gospel, we did not do rock around the cross in the church in my youth. We didn't. It would have been, you would have been out of order to jumping up and down like you're in a juke joint or a gin house. You would have been out of order. You would have never done it. But if you were raised in a more charismatic church and that's how you praise God that's how you praise God so we need to be careful how fine we draw the definition of the nature of the church and the marks of the church we may like it there may be some biblical principles but there may be a latitude that God's people are allowed to engage in that still pleases God amen to that no I'm not getting an amen because we want our way <laughs> Okay, so that's generally what we're looking at. I want to look at the nature and the marks of the church as we've been talking about. Um, look at your, what's the first verse? Verse 41. So those who had received his word were being baptized that day. They were added about 3,000 souls. Some of your translations will say what they were added to. 
These people that have resented, repented of their sins and been baptized, they've been added to Christ's church. They've been added to Christ as the head, and therefore they've been added to Christ's church as his body. The book of uh, Acts is about the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ is the church. As I say, if we get to Acts chapter 4, we're going to see uh, more people being added to the church. So we are looking at the church. What's helpful for us is to consider a basic definition of the church. And I'm going to say something which, of course, is unique to the way that we understand things as Reformed Presbyterians. The church doesn't technically begin in Acts chapter 1 or specifically Acts chapter uh, 2 with Pentecost. We believe, I believe, the Bible teaches that the church began technically with the preaching of the gospel in Genesis chapter uh, 3. Uh, 15, and then technically, technically, with the two people that believe the gospel, uh, Adam and Eve. They were the um, first two-member church of the Lord God. And what did they believe? They believed the gospel in seminal form. And I don't. There's kind of. I suppose in seminal form is a, is a play on words. And and the gospel is essentially what as given in in Genesis 3:15. And the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the seed the the uh, the head of the serpent. And so that's the gospel. Adam and Eve believed it, and they are a two-member church. There's another church that we find in the Bible, and it was an eight-member church. And uh, it was Noah and his family, and they got off that ark. There was an eight-member church. If you, if you read the King James Version of the Bible, um, the King James Version of the Bible correctly will translate in the New Testament. The New Testament says that the Old Testament people of God, Israel, they were the church. I know that's in distinction from my dispensational Baptist brothers. I was a dispensationalist at one time. They'll say, Israel is Israel, the church is the church, and the twain shall never meet. That's not true, beloved. I'm going to read something to you. Remember, we want to be Bereans. I'm not picking on the folks. I was one of them. There are some dispensational teachers. I couldn't hold their bags. They're so much superior to me, but it is not true. Um, Israel uh, wandering in the desert was the church of the Lord God. The Bible says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. This is that Moses, which said, this is New Testament speaking about Israel. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brothers, like unto me. Him you shall hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. He calls old Israel in the wilderness, the church, and it uses the Greek word, which is the customary Greek word for church, ecclesia. Some of your denominations, you may say, well, pastor, mine says congregation. The Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was New Testament, was written in Greek. The Holy Spirit inspires the writer to say that the, the, the congregation in, uh, of Israel is the ecclesia, is the church. Now, the common Old Testament word in Hebrew, for the church is the word Ada. I butcher it. I'll just I'll translate E D A H, and it's most often translated as the congregation, the assembly, or the company, the multitude, something like that. And the idea is, if you look, it means the people of the Lord, the people of God, the children of God, the people of those that believe in and follow the God of the Bible, Jehovah. The people that are hoping for and longing for what were 
uh, Simon and Anna looking for in the New Testament? What were they longing for? It's a picture of the Old Testament church. What were they longing for? They were longing for Christ to come. And so that's what the, the church in the Old Testament is, the assembly of those who profess to believe in the Lord. Now, I just mentioned in the New Testament, there are two words for church. One which is the more customary or usual word, which is that ecclesia word. The other one is a transliteration of a, of a Hebrew word, synagogue. And, and, and they both flesh out for us what is being built here. What's the nature of this church? And ecclesia is a compound word. It means the called out ones. That's who we are. We are the called out ones here in this room. Repent of your sins, believe in Christ, be baptized, come to Christ. Now they're gathered together as 3,000 souls. There's going to be the called out idea and the, and the synagogue, the gathered together idea. So the, the, the church consists of people who have been called out of darkness into what? Light. They've been called out of death into life. They've been called away from serving sin and Satan and serving holiness in God and Christ. And how are we called out of those things to, to God and Christ? How are we? And we see it in the text, which is the mark of the church. We're not called out by mystical experience. We're called out by the preaching of the word. It's the word that calls us out. Peter's preaching. Men preach and then they teach. And what does the Bible principally teach? It principally teaches two things. What God requires men to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. Or it teaches law gospel. And what does the preaching of the law of God tell us? That we've failed in it. And that's in the wages of that is death. And so then you have the preaching of the gospel which calls us to God and Christ. So the church consists of those who have been called out of spiritual darkness and spiritual death into spiritual light and spiritual life by God in Christ. That's the church. That's the church. And the other counterpart word to that, you see it used in the book of Acts later in chapter 4. James uses it. Remember James chapter 2? The early church. We sometimes think... Well, if I could go back to the early church, it, was, it would be like perfect. One time I took a theology class. It was called Scottish Theology in seminary. And I thought, well, Scotland, I mean, they're Presbyterians. This is like going to heaven. If I could go back to the 1700s, and it would be nothing but Presbyterians, no Baptists, no Episcopalians to, to wreck the purity of the church, only, only Presbyterians. What do you find? They're all nuts. They're all nuts. One Presbyterian fighting the other Presbyterian fighting the other Presbyterian. I said, well, how, how, how does this work? How does this work? This, this gathered together idea, this synagogue idea, and I mentioned the James. James shows us right from the very beginning of the institution of the New Testament church, poor folks come walking into the church. And what did the rich folks say? We don't have any good spots for you up here. <laughs> Back of the bus for you. They're like this close to Christ, temporally, historically speaking, and they're already corrupting the church. We've been called out of sin, called out of darkness, and that synagogue idea is we've been called together. Called together. We're gathered together. Called away from sin, 
called to God in Christ. They're the counterpart ideas. And the church is constituted of people that have been called out of our sin to God in Christ, and we've been called to Christ. And the moment we're called to Jesus Christ as our head, what's going on in our passage is we are joined to Christ's body. We are joined to the body of Christ. We're joined to those other people that have likewise been called out of their sin to Jesus Christ. And we're joined to them spiritually, mystically, and really. I prayed it earlier. If there's a next week and we talk about the fellowship of the church, you're looking at how Christian family members treat other Christian family members. That's the fellowship of the church. But that family idea, that kingdom idea, that whole household idea, that's that synagogue idea. We've been gathered together. So the moment you believe in Jesus, you are also joined spiritually, really, to the body of Jesus Christ, other people that love Christ. That's what we see going on here. And so as we consider the business of being, considering the definition of the church, and then obviously applying it to ourselves to see if we're members of Christ's church, the basic, the basic question we have to ask ourselves is, have we individually, personally been called out of our sin to God in Christ? Have we? Have we been joined to the head? And then we have to ask ourselves, well, if we, we have a new heart, we have a new song, do we have a new family? Do you have a new family? Do you have a new family? Do you have a Christian family that other men, women, boys and girls that love the same Christ that you love, that have been called out of sin, called to God in Christ, do you own them as your family? That's what's going on here. And so it's something that we have to answer. So the definition of the church, we are the, the assembled together ones, the called out ones, the gathered together ones. And there's two ways that we can, can consider a distinction of the church. Um, one is through God's lenses and another is through man's lenses. What we are looking at here being advanced is what I would call the visible church. Um, I want to back up before that. It's not unique to the Reformed Church or to Presbyterianism. Um, we, we sometimes say the church is one, right? We say the church is one. Well, from this one church, you're going to have churches and churches and churches. We, we can look in uh, Pensacola today. There's probably 400 Protestant churches, right? 400. So how can we say Christ's church that he purchases, Matthew 16, he says singular, my church, how can we even legitimately say there's one church? How can we legitimately say that? One is if we look at the church through the lenses of God. Now God will show us how he sees the church. And the invisible church is just this. It's all of the elect people of God. All of the, the ch- those who are chosen before the foundations of the, the world, they constitute the elect true church. That's one. And I mean past, present, future. When the Apostle Paul was Saul of, uh, of Tarsus and he was killing Christians and trying to stop Jesus, was he elect? Yeah. How do you know he's elect? When he repents and when he believes. So the invisible church is only the true elect, past, present, and future. All of those who will come to saving faith in God and Christ. But the only way, read Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. The only way to know if you're truly elect is how? You believe. 
And that's where we come in to the visible church. So the invisible church is as, as God sees it. It's the perfect church. There are no unbelievers there. When the church, the glorified church in uh, Revelation uh, 19 and 21 comes down out of heaven, will there be any unbelievers in that church? No. That's what we would say is the invisible church as God sees it. What we're looking at here in our passage is the visible church. And this is the ordinary way that we think of church. And what we mean by this is all those who profess true religion or the true gospel, and then I'll throw in our distinctive, along with their children. All those who profess the true gospel along with their children are the visible church. Again, it doesn't say Presbyterian, Episcopal, Baptist, Pentecostal, none of it. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, the true gospel, I think that the doctrine of justification is the essence of the gospel, that we are justified, reckoned, counted, righteous, not for our own sake, but only for the sake of Jesus Christ. We get his righteousness uh, uh, reckoned to us, received by faith alone. I think that's the essence of the gospel. And we're justified, considered holy and righteous. If you have that and believe that, you are a member of the true church. And I would argue if you don't have that, you're uh, uh, not a member of the true church. And we would argue people that profess true religion along with their children constitute the visible church. Now, what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2, the New Testament visible church does begin with the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our past passage. And what we see in the visible church is that unlike the way that God sees it, does the visible church have wheat and tares? Does, the visible, does this church, the one that's being built, as we see going through the book of Acts, will there be unbelievers that say they repent, they say they believe, that they receive water baptism, and they're still an unbeliever, even though they say they're believers? Can we find them? Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 7. He says, I totally believe in Jesus, but he totally didn't. And he was baptized. Well, he's a member of the church. Yep, and the Holy Spirit tells the apostle Peter to tell him when he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit with money, you're still in the gall of bitterness. You're an unbeliever. You're an unbeliever in the church. So when we consider the visible church, whatever expression, we are a mixed multitude. That means wheat tares, sheep goats. There are people who say, oh, I love Jesus, and they do. True member. There are people who say, oh, I love Jesus, and they don't. Who in Christ's church, as it were, um, went to his own place for 30 pieces of silver? He preached Christ. Judas preached Christ. Demas was a member of the church, and he forsook Christ. He forsook the church. He went back to the world for the love of the world. So what we're looking at is the advance of a mixed multitude, and only God ultimately knows the truth of it. So we are looking at the extension or the growth of the New Testament visible church. Now let's consider the membership of this church as the Bible speaks about it. Look at verse 41 and verse 47. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 what? Souls. 3,000 souls. Verse 7, uh, 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I'm going to say something, and this is not profound, but I think it needs to be said. When we're looking at the church, what it is, the church 
is people. I put a Facebook post in. Facebook, because of their algorithms, you have like 50,000 friends or followers on Facebook and only like your mother gets to see your... There's like two people in a house cat that actually will see it. Um, and I put, it was very pithy, I thought, a little picture depicting this idea of the church. And it was a, in the shape of a church building, but it was people that were making up the, the, the shape of the church building. The church that the Lord Jesus Christ is building upon the earth, um, it, it's people. It, it's people with a soul. It's, and I, I know this sounds almost so simple, simple it, it would be stupid. The church is not brick and mortar. It's not, it's not this. It's not the building. I'm, and I'm for buildings. If in God's providence, he gives you the wherewithal to buy a building so you as the church can meet in the building, then that's wisdom, that's prudence, and that's his own kindness. But the building is not the church. The, the, the building is the people. The church is not saved. Stuff is not saved. Jesus didn't die for brick or mortar. And I know, again, this, well, Pastor John, we know that. I don't think we do know that. I don't think we do know that. I, I believe that we are in that Amos chapter, what is it, 8? There's a famine in the land. That's a famine in the church for, for reading the Bible and understanding the Bible. When churches, you, you see, our church is being blessed. How do you know our church is being blessed? We just built a new wing. We just built a new wing. We're going here and we're going there and we're building this and we're building that. And man, we're taking over. And one of our members got to be a congressman or a senator or whatever. Man, we're taking over. Jesus Christ said, I know almost no one believes this. Jesus Christ said, my kingdom is what? To Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, who told you I was a king? He said, I'm a king. And then what does he say? My kingdom is not of this. Thank you very much. It's a spiritual kingdom. The church is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the family of God. And Jesus didn't shed his blood for buildings. He he shed his blood for people. To redeem people with an eternal soul that if they didn't have the blood of the Lamb, they would spend eternity in a horrible place. But with the blood of the Lamb, they spend eternity in a wonderful place. The Apostle Peter says this, Jesus is busy building a living temple of people and coming to him, Jesus, as a living stone that has been rejected by men but it is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, the, the reason I think we need to stress that the church consists of people, it is, we we get so sidetracked by the physical stuff. We, we really do. I'm from New England, Massachusetts. I lived for 15 or 16 years of my life in the summer on Cape Cod. If you go to the land of my birth, I went to met my wife in college in Northampton, uh, Amherst, which is out in western Massachusetts. If you go out there 
and you look at churches, the buildings, church buildings, it makes this look like a joke. This is just a shoebox. I wouldn't even walk into this place if I was just looking at the, the outside. The, the churches of, of my youth are beautiful New England uh, style buildings, right? What does the Bible say about them? They've left biblical truth. They've left the biblical Christ. They've left the, the biblical truth of the, the Trinity. There's no faithful preaching as it were. The administration of the sacraments, all of those things. What does the Bible say about the building? Ichabod. Ichabod. But boy, howdy, it's really pretty. Yeah, boy, howdy, it's, it's really pretty. We get so... People will cut your throat in a church, Christians, over, like, the building. But we forget. It's not about the building. It's about our mother in the faith, our father in the faith, our grandmother in the faith, our grandchildren in the faith. It's about people. The church is about people. Jesus Christ came because he loved people. And, and he's building up his own people. I, I know it's simple, but I think it needs to be said. And I would argue that as we look at the advance of the church in, in the book of Acts, they didn't, they didn't have what we have. They didn't have a designated church building. And where were these people meeting here? The Bible tells us in verse 46, they're meeting in a temple, the courtyards. They're still meeting in the... They meet where they can meet. They were Christian Jews, so they, they had access to the temple. They're meeting in the courtyards. We're told over and over and over again in the book of Acts, I think 10 to 14 times, and the church met in someone's private what? House. House. If all of a sudden, God forbid, we have a hurricane and we don't have a building, what's going to happen to the church here? We're all going to meet in my garage and I'll turn on the fan and we'll have church <laughs> because the church is the people. But there have been many occasions through the life of God's people. They didn't have a dedicated building. They met where they could meet, whether here in the temple, in a private home, here on the day of Pentecost, they're in another private home in the upper room. And where did God save Lydia? Down by a river. Down by a river. That was the church. The Apostle Paul comes preaching down by a river. And he finds a, a couple people, a couple women, and they're praying and they're worshiping. God opens this, eye, this woman's eyes. That's the church. Remember where the Apostle Paul preached? I forget where it was. It was called School of, you remember this? School of what? Tyrannus? Imagine that for the name of a church. Yeah, where do you all go to church? First tyrant. We go to first tyrant. I mean, tyrannus, I know, at least means, in, in Greek means tyrant or des, despot. He's preaching in the school of the despot or the tyrant. Why? Because they rented him the hall. They rented him the hall. I mean, there are Christians meeting in like, who knows? Give me a place where I can gather. What does Jesus say in Matthew? Wherever two or three are gathered in one place in my name, there is what? There I am. That's the church. Oh, beloved, we need to have a radically transformed way because we all have the flesh and we're inclined to it and we're thinking it's all about we're going to build the kingdom this way. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, no, you're not. The kingdom is being built, as we see. Not only is it about people, and this seems super, super simple, what kind of people? 
the Christian church is comprised of Christian people. I mean, I know you think, well, duh. Of course it's composed of Christian people. What does it mean to be a Christian? We're told in the passage. We're told. The church is anywhere people, Christ people, peoples gather. And if I were to kind of back up in here, in a little bit after Acts, maybe Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, what's going to happen to this church in Jerusalem? Persecution is going to come, and the church is going to go everywhere to four corners of the earth. What does that teach us about the nature of the church? It goes everywhere. The church in Corinth is the church because it's people. People love Christ. Church in Galatia, uh, Philippi, all of those things. What does that teach us about the nature of the church? And we need to get this as well. Not only is the church not the building, the church is universal. It it is cross-cultural, cross-ethnic, and it's still one. People have been called out of their sins by the preaching of God's word to Jesus Christ. So if we go to Zimbabwe and me, three-quarters Irish and a quarter German, I go walking in to my Zimbabwean brothers and sisters into their church, what? I'm a member. (laughs) They're my family. And you think, oh, how cute. Oh, no. Our brother was talking about some divisions in our country. Judgment begins with the house of God first. We don't believe this. We want to hyphenate all over the place. We, we want to hyphenate. We're this kind of church and this kind of church and the church for this kind of folks and the church for that kind of folks. Oh, no, we're not. From every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, we're called to the same Jesus and we belong to the same flock. Oh, oh, if we really believe this, what would happen if we really believe this? Black folks that believe the same Christ, white folks that believe the same Christ, poor folks that believe the same Christ, Democrat folks that believe the same Christ, Republican folks that believe the same Christ, what would happen? And so we have here the identity, as I've mentioned, it's folks that believe in Jesus, verse 41, they receive the word, verse 44, those who had believed. I know this, again, I, I almost cringe that I'm having to sound so basic. Churches are comprised of people that believe in Jesus. Again, of course, not of course, not of course. Could I find a building that calls itself a church right now and start quizzing people in in their buildings? Y'all believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? 100% of them, are they going to say yes, only Jesus? No, no. A boatload of them will say Well, you could believe in Muhammad, you could believe in Buddha, you could believe in whatever. Beloved, a church is comprised of people that profess Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. Now, what about the people that say we are Christians and we're a church, but they deny those things? What are they then? They're a synagogue of Satan. So when we come, you say, well, I was raised in the church. You were raised in a church building. Praise God. Here's the ultimate question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Have you repented? Do you believe? And then you could rightly say, I'm a member of the church. But if you say, well, I'm a member of Sally's church, and we don't believe any of this business about repenting of sins or believing in Jesus, we just don't believe it. You have the name that you live, but you don't live. So saith the Lord. 
So the church is comprised of people that say they believe. The Bible calls believers. We are the, we are the assembly of the believers. My father-in-law is a Hindu, and he taught um, chemistry in Brazil for, I don't know how many years, 30-plus years. So he's fluent in Portuguese. And Christians would come and witness to him, his students. And the Christians referred to themselves as cranties. I'll butcher that. Cranty in Portuguese. It means believers. They're believers. When you gather together on a Lord's Day right here, you are saying implicitly, you, you are stepping away from the world and you are saying, I am a believer. I am a believer in Jesus. And, and, and someone says, well, I have nothing to do with the church. Essentially, you're saying, I am not a believer. And that's what's going on here. We are separating. We're gathering together. And we're saying it loud and we're saying it proud. To quote a very famous songster, James Brown, we're believers. And so when folks say to me, well, pastor, I'm a Christian. I just don't have anything to do with the church. Why not? Are you ashamed to say that you belong to Jesus? Are you ashamed of your family members? And we're coming and saying, we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed of Christ. We're not ashamed of our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We're family. That's what's going on here. And we mentioned it before. Not only are churches comprised of people that believe Christ is the Savior, over and over again, verse 38, churches are comprised of those who have repented of their sins. You know, and this is... <clears throat> Let me give a summary definition of repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of a sense of, a sight in a sense, not only of the danger, but of the filthiness and odiousness of sin, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to all that are penitent, he grieves for and hates his sin and turns from it. When people come to a church, a gathering of God's people, they should find people that hate sin. And you know whose sin we should hate most of all? Our own. Our own. We should quit going, looky yonder, looky yonder, looky yonder. I have enough sin to choke a mule. God's people should be, I hate sin. I hate lawlessness. And I turn to my God in my Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. We make it so easy for the world to go, look at y'all. Y'all say you hate sin, but you live in it. That's our fault. That's our fault. The church should be a people of sin-hating people and holiness-loving people. And then we see, and good. I'm, I'm leaving almost no room for this, which is really good. We see not only are they, the church comprised of folks that believe as he's presented in the Bible and they repent of their sins, but they're also baptized. They're also baptized. There are some people who say, well, is baptism necessary for salvation? Is it necessary for salvation? Do you need water baptized to go to heaven? No, you don't. The Church of My Youth says yes. The Roman Catholic Church. So if you say, this text says, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Our brother taught it this morning in Sunday school. We don't make our theology by one text you don't rip one verse out of the Bible and build your entire doctrine of anything. Baptism, faith, heaven, hell, nothing. It has to be seen in the context. Because if you use this one verse as your only text on baptism, then it's te teaching remission of sin by water baptism. And I don't want to, because I don't have a ton of time, but my point with that is this. <clears throat> 
Baptism, like the Lord's Supper, is the gospel in tangible signs and seals. It's confirmation of the word that I am preaching. People that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ receive water baptism. We're here in the name of Christ, Matthew chapter 28, in the name of the triune God. We are testifying that we belong to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It makes a distinction between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. And the last thing I want to say is not only is the church comprised of those who have received water baptism. Again, I would argue it doesn't say sprinkling, dunking, pouring here. It's just we've submitted to the ordinance. The last thing I want to point out, which I think is obvious, and it says the promise of this gospel salvation is to you that have repented and believed into what other entity? Into your children. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was converted. I became a Baptist. As soon as I was a Baptist, I said, nope, kiddos are out. The kiddos are out of the church because they can't repent and they can't believe. Therefore, they're out of the church. So I'm very sympathetic. I was a Baptist for a long time as a Christian. Um, My Baptist brothers and sisters are my my brothers and sisters in Jesus. I came, obviously, to embrace a different um, understanding of things. We believe that the church consists of all those who profess true religion along with our children. The only thing I want to say is this. Even as a Baptist, I remember this. Baptists will say, again, I'm not picking, but it's only those who believe are part of the church. That's in theory. In practice, they don't do that. Because I didn't do it. Every Baptist that loves the Lord Jesus, really, that's a mother and a father, do they treat their kid like Mahatma Gandhi? Do you treat your kid like a little pagan? I already know the answer. I was Johnny the Baptist. Did I treat my little Justin and my little Chelsea like a little heathen? No. What did I say to them? Honey bun, we're going to have Bible time. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to pray. We're going to go to church. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to love Jesus. Because that's what the Bible says. What was I treating my little buttercup just like? A little disciple. Does being born of a mother and father ensure that they're Jacob and not an Esau? No. Am I saying baptizing an infant saves them? No, because baptizing a 7 to 12-year-old in the Baptist church doesn't save them either. Baptizing a 35-year-old doesn't save them. It's only when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the difference is this, that we are saying that the Bible teaches that believers, along with their children, are members of the visible church. I want you to think of this. Children that die, little ones, infants, can they be members of Christ's heavenly kingdom? Yes or no? Infants of believers, when they die, can they be members of Christ's heavenly family? Yes or no? The church is the kingdom of Jesus. The church is the family of God. Why can we say they're members of the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly family, and deny them membership in the earthly family? It's to us and to our children. And we raise them in the Lord, and we pray over them that they would love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. No parent would ever be satisfied. You love Christ, you're going to heaven, your kids are on your own. No parent would. None. Am I right with that? It's to us and to our children, the church. May we love Christ. May we love the church. May we love all 
those in all of the different churches. I've just mentioned differences on baptism. May we love, love, love people that differ with us even on these things because we're members of the same family. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.